you have your Bibles, and we encourage you to bring your Bibles these days, turn to the book of Luke. While you're turning there, I want to say this. I had one of those evenings, um, uh, I got about an hour and a half of sleep, uh, and it's just one of those things where the Lord wakes you up. I don't know if this ever happens to you. It happens to me sometimes, and it's, I, I just uh, can't sleep. And uh, a lot of times I do my writing during those periods. Last night I just felt like I was supposed to spend time with God and had a, a wonderful, wonderful night with God. Uh, just, you know, uh, waiting on him and talking to him and uh, letting him talk to me and doing some journaling. Uh, and it was really a wonderful time. It leaves you a little bit tired in the morning, uh, but, but it's a wonderful time. Part of what I did there is uh, Chris Winnegar guy who goes to this church here, told me about a book that I ordered on Friday and got, or on Thursday, and I got in the mail on, on Saturday. And it's called The Sacrament of the Present Moment by Jean-Pierre de Cossade or something like that. Uh, he, he was a Jesuit priest of the, in the uh, 18th century. And it's very much like Brother Lawrence is practicing the presence of God, but uh, a little bit better, I think. And so last night, I, I, as kind of a devotion, started reading through this. And, and this is what we've been talking about. I really encourage you to get this book. Some of it's a little bit tough reading because uh, he writes in the 18th century sort of, uh, it's, trans it's updated, but still it's difficult at times. But it's about, and we talked so much about this uh, several months ago, uh, how, the, how, how following Jesus is a moment-by-moment -moment thing. And it's about walking with an awareness of the presence of God and walking with a heart that's always open to God. We're saying, I will follow Jesus. See, that's a declaration. But it's a declaration that's meaningless unless you're following him this moment and now in this moment because life is nothing other than a series of moments strung together. It's about living in the now, living in the presence. And um, uh, so I encourage you to check out this book, The Sacrament of the Present Moment. It's a powerful, powerful I'm not endorsing every theological nuance of the thing, but the gist of it is just really, really good. All right, we're reading from the book of Luke, and we're actually going to move on to the next six verses after having spent two months on the previous six verses. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. This section here from verse 39 to 56 in traditional liturgies is called the visitation where Mary visits Elizabeth. And a lot of, a lot of um, traditional prayers, especially in the Catholic tradition, come from this section of Scripture. I, I recognize a lot of it you know, in, in, my, in my Catholic upbringing. Uh, there's a famous painting called The Visitation, uh, which is painted in the Middle Ages. Uh, who painted that? I, I forget. Was that Raphael? Could have been. Well, somebody painted it, uh, and that's kind of the backdrop of the verses that we're, that we're going to be uh, reading here this morning. So let's go through it. And I want to entitle this message, The Old and the New, or Letting Go of the Old in Order to Embrace the New. Verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Um, in response to the report that she just got that her, her distant relative, Elizabeth, who was much, much older than her. But in response to that, uh, she wants to go visit Elizabeth. And so Mary, as soon as she's done with talking to the angel or some short time afterwards, uh, she runs uh, to greet uh, Elizabeth. 
It's clear that at that point, she's already, the work that God wanted to do in her in, in, in conceiving Jesus was already done, as we'll see here in, in a moment. But Mary, this 13, 12 or 13-year-old girl, takes off to the hillside of, of Judea. It would have been about a 70-mile journey in those days, three to five days' journey. Uh, and this girl just sets off. Now, we don't know if her family went with her or if she went in a caravan or whatever, but it's a rather bold and unexpected move, which itself is sort of a testimony to the weird nature of this kingdom that were, that's being inaugurated in these verses. It causes people to do things they normally wouldn't do. In verse 40, it says, uh, Once Mary got there, she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. You'll recall that Zechariah couldn't greet because Zechariah can't talk at this point because Zechariah... Guy did an interrogation of Gabriel, and that was the sign that he received as he couldn't, he couldn't uh, speak. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw several months ago, several verses ago, that, uh, that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time while he was still in the womb. And so here John the Baptist, the unborn John the Baptist, leaps in the womb when, when he comes into the, uh, the vicinity of Jesus. He leaps for joy. It tells us a lot about a kingdom perspective on the unborn, but it also tells us a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit in this kingdom that's coming about. Uh, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. When John the Baptist leaps for joy, Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth is going to give a, a prophecy here. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing about is a kingdom where the Holy Spirit is contagious. And I'll be saying more about that next week and the next couple of weeks as we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit in the kingdom of God. Elizabeth then, uh, in a loud voice, exclaimed, she prophesied, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. We'll see in the book of Luke that the Holy Spirit is most frequently associated with prophesying. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you prophesy, which is speaking the word of God boldly and truly. Verse 43, But why, Elizabeth says, am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knows that Mary has the Lord inside of her. The mother of my Lord should come to me. For as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill the, promise, the promises to her. And so here Mary was blessed because uh, she was given the, the Savior uh, to, to bear. And then the second blessing that Elizabeth gives is a blessing because she believed. She accepted the promise of God. Uh, that's another theme in Luke, that here we have Elizabeth and, and Mary who believe, but the guy who you'd think would be most in touch with God, Zechariah, the high priest guy, he doesn't believe, or at least he had trouble believing. And again, it shows the upside-down nature of uh, the kingdom of God. So I want to talk about the old and the new. What we have going on in this verse is really a, a, a bridging of two eras, the old and the new. In fact, this theme has been going on throughout the introduction of Luke and will continue to go on for the next couple chapters. Uh, we're talking about the inauguration of this new thing, the new kingdom, which will lead to the New Testament. And the first three chapters of Luke are really this transitional thing where we're leaving the old and going into the new. You see it, for example, in the fact that the first visitation of Gabriel was in the temple. And it was to the, high, to, it was to the priest, Zechariah. And that represents the old. The, the temple was the center of the old religion. And, and, he's, and Gabriel shows up to the old guard. 
And so it starts in the old, and then it transitions to the new when Gabriel then shows up to this, to, to this little girl in this unknown town called Nazareth and now is going to uh, you know, bring her in on what God is doing. It goes from the, the temple, which represents the old. The new is represented by a peasant girl in an unnamed town, which is already beginning to show us some of the contours, some of the nuances of this new kingdom. It's a very unexpected sort of kingdom. This meeting between Elizabeth and Mary is really a meeting of the old and the new. Uh, Elizabeth and John are, are at the tail end of the old, and their job is to usher in the new. John the Baptist was to be a forerunner of Jesus. Elizabeth and John represent the old, and Mary and Jesus represent the new. And most biblical scholars believe that the main point of this passage that we're dealing with here this morning is to exemplify the proper understanding or the proper relationship between the old and the new. Elizabeth and John aren't in competition with Mary and Jesus. John isn't jealous because he's not the Messiah, but Jesus is. Elizabeth isn't mad because Mary uh, gets to conceive of the, the, the Son of God instead of her. Rather, Elizabeth and John both are filled with the Spirit, and they usher in the new. They point to the new. They submit to the new. They rejoice in the new. And that's the proper understanding that we need to have between the old and the new. Now, I want to apply that in two distinct areas here this morning. The first application, and it's, it's really the most obvious one, and it's very, very important because it's very often missed, is it affects our understanding of the Old and New Testaments, the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. Jesus clearly believed the Old Testament was inspired by God, and so we who are disciples of Jesus believe that the Old Testament is inspired by God. But that's not at all to say that the Old Testament is to have the same footing as be on the same footing, on equal footing with the New Testament. The New Testament supersedes the Old Testament. Elizabeth and John are very important, but they're not the heroes of the story, and they're not what we base our faith on. We base our faith on the Jesus who came forth from Mary, and they're the heroes of the story. So also, there's much to learn and some very important things to learn from the Old Testament. But the center of our faith isn't to be rooted in the Old Testament. Rather, the purpose of the Old Testament is to lay the background, the context, the foundation of what's going to happen in the New Testament. And the New Testament is the foundation of our faith. Paul describes the relationship between these two like this in Galatians chapter 4. Paul says, The law was put in charge of us until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Okay, let's break this apart a little bit. Most scholars believe that when Paul talks about the supervision of, of the law here, he's referring to, or in some translations, it's custodian. He's referring to the servant disciplinarians who were uh, common in, in households in the ancient Roman world. They had... Well, it was sort of like a nanny with teeth. Uh, uh, it was a nanny who was entrusted with the, the children of the household. And the job of the nanny was to use uh, promises and threats and punishments and rewards uh, as a way of teaching kids right from wrong and social decency and those things. That's what the, this, this custodian did, this nanny with teeth did. The goal of the nanny, of course, as it is with any good parent, 
is to raise up these children so that eventually they don't need uh, threats and promises, punishments and rewards in order to do the right thing. The goal is for them to internalize these principles so that they make their decisions on their own. There comes a point when you've got to get rid of the nanny. But the goal of the nanny is, is to, to uh, deal with these kids when they're at an age where they can't um, have the principles or don't have the principles in on themselves. That is the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, Paul is saying. The Old Testament was to lead us to Christ. It was the foundation. It was God playing a nanny supervision role, but the goal is to bring us to Christ where the nanny is no longer needed. Everything, everything about the Old Testament has to be read as the nanny preparing us for Christ and preparing humanity for this kingdom revolution. From the perspective of those like ourselves who are after Christ, as we look back on the Old Testament, if we're honest, some of it is strange, isn't it? Is it just me here? Some of, it's, some of it is, is, is a little bit bizarre. and In fact, some of it seems childish. Some of it, the way God acts is sometimes bizarre. Some of the laws that are given, some of the threats and some of the punishments look childish. And even, if you're asking me, sometimes it looks barbaric. Now, in, in relationship to other cultures of the time, it's a monumental step forward. But, but from New Testament standards, it is, quite frankly, those laws about slaves and women and all those other kind of things, some of them are, 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 are by New Testament standards barbaric but see whether we understand the details of why exactly God acted the way he did back then and gave the rules he gave back then whether we can understand that or not one thing we've got to understand and that and that is that all of that was God operating in a nanny mode with an infantile humanity trying to bring us to the point where the world would be prepared for Christ he was preparing the way for a more mature relationship with him that would be through the person of Jesus Christ now, what that means for us is this, among many other things. We've got to make sure that we're always basing our faith on the new, not on the old. Uh, God had a nanny mode in the Old Testament, but the goal was to show us that he doesn't want to always be our nanny. He wants to be our lover. <laughs> and, and we need to be basing our, our faith, our picture of God, our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of the world, not on the Old Testament, but on the New Testament, and more specifically, on the revelation that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, we understand that while there's a lot of things in that nanny mode that are hard to understand, in Christ, here's what we do understand. That God's ultimate goal is not to be our nanny, but he wants to be our lover. God's, in, in Jesus Christ, what God says is, he's really saying, here's what I'm really like. Here's my heart of hearts. No, I know I had to do that nanny stuff. I, and I know some of it was a little bit bizarre. And 500 years ago and 5,000 years ago, you guys weren't ready to, to receive uh, who I really am. But now at least some of you are ready. And so I'm going to, on the cross of Calvary, I'm going to reveal to you my heart of hearts, what I'm really about. And now in the person of Jesus Christ, we can begin to see that God is a God who, whatever he looks like in the nanny mode, he wants to be our lover. He's a God who says, I love you. A God who says, I'll die for you. A God who says, I want to stand in your place. A God who says, I want to live on your inside. A God who says, I don't want to be in eternity without you. A God who says, I'll pay any price to be in a, in a marriage-like relationship with you. That's the heart of uh, God's heart. Uh, don't let the old block you from the new. Base all of your understanding on the new. Let go of the old to embrace the new. That's why Jesus says to Philip in John 14, a verse that I quote all the time, 
when, when Philip says, hey, show us the Father. Come on, you've been talking about the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, dude, have I been so long with you? I've been with you all this time, and yet you don't know me. If you know me, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? And what Jesus is saying there is, you want to know what, exactly what God is like? Voila, here I am. Uh, you don't need to be looking to the right or the left or above me or below me or some obscure Old Testament verse or trying to interpret your past experience like a tarot card to try to figure out who God is and what his will is and what his character is about. Look to the person of Jesus Christ. Over and over again we read this where, where it, it says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1 it says this, says God in times past spoke to our ancestors through prophets and many times and in a lot of different ways. But in these last days, which simply means in this last chapter of history, he's spoken to us by his son. The son is the one he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. This isn't just a prophet. This isn't just an event. This is God himself, the creator himself, coming down on earth in the form of a human being to show us what he's really like. That's why the author says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The exact representation. This is exactly what God is like. Everything else was colored by what God was up to dealing with humanity to lay the foundation. Everything else uh, in times past was about God operating in a nanny mode. But here we see what God is really like. Because Jesus Christ is the image of God and the form of God and the definitive revelation of God. Don't put Jesus alongside the Old Testament as though they're on equal footing. People get, some people get this idea that, okay, God is, okay, Jesus is sort of the nice God, but then the meanie God is in the Old Testament, and I guess God is kind of partly nice and partly meanie. No, 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 no. Jesus isn't like half of God's revelation or even two-thirds of God's revelation. Jesus is the full revelation of God. The, 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 he's the Word of God, image of God, form of God. So don't put Jesus alongside the Old Testament. Rather, put Jesus in front of the Old Testament and read everything in the Old Testament in the light of Jesus Christ. Let him be the filter through which you understand everything about God. Don't claim to know anything about God other than what you find in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Do the same thing with world events. Uh, man, so don't interpret world events in the light of Old the Old Testament. Interpret world events in the light of the New Testament. Here we're dealing with uh, this hurricane, and as always happens, and it grieves my heart, uh, you know, the airwaves are flooded, and the internet is flooded with, with commentaries on why this hurricane happened, and, and God was behind it, and God's clearly punishing New Orleans for all of its debauchery, and uh, then they always will name, or often name, their special little sin group that they're sure God is going after, uh, you know, and it's always a group that has some sin other than what they have. It's never self-righteousness and, and, and greed and things like that. It's always these, the, the, the Christian hobby horse sins. And, and, and so God's behind it and God's bringing judgment on this and all those sorts of things. See, in the Old Testament, God did do that once in a while. It wasn't his normal mode of operation, even in nanny mode. But he, even then, he didn't, do it, uh, uh, he didn't do it everywhere. On occasion, he brought natural disasters on his kids as he's teaching them with this rewards and punishment mode trying to hammer into them that it's really to their advantage to follow God and using these basic means of doing it. That's true. On occasion, he did that. But he didn't do it with other nations, generally speaking. And when he did do it, he told them what he was doing. Usually, in fact, Amos says God never did, does anything without telling his prophets first. 
and, and God would give him a chance to repent. He would say, okay, you guys, look at, uh, if you don't turn from your wicked ways, here's what's going to happen to you. And, and there was no guesswork. Never do you find someone in the Bible saying, oh, what's God trying to tell us? Hmm, must be your fault, your fault. Maybe it's your fault. I don't know, maybe it's your fault. You never find that stuff. A good teacher always tells the kid, okay, if you do that one more time, you're going to get a spanking. Then you spank him. You don't spank the kid and say, guess why I did that? <laughs> but that's how people treat God. Boy, I'll throw you a hurricane. Now I'll figure out who to blame for that one. That's not how God operates. Not even in nanny mode. But the, the more important issue is this. We've got no reason to think that God's still in nanny mode. In fact, in, 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 in this new kingdom, Jesus tells us, and this is really the point of this whole passage, uh, God's operating in a new mode. He, he's, he's, he's taken it up to a new level. He wants a different kind of relationship with us. And what we find in the New, new Testament is that God is a God who, who he reveals his true heart when he takes the judgment for sin upon himself. On the cross, Jesus stands in our place as sinners. Jesus experiences his own punishment. Jesus pays the price for all sin. Not only for our sin, John says, but for the sins of the entire world, which tells me there's no more sin left to punish. And so God doesn't need to be going out there throwing hurricanes at people in order to get even. That's, it's taking care of the cross. And anyone who's thinking that God's got some undone judgment left where he's got to be doing this to New Orleans or Indonesia or whatever, you're really just saying the cross wasn't enough. No, there's still some wrath that's got to be brought down. Folks, we're not in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament, and that should completely change the way we think about this these things. If you center your faith on Jesus Christ, what you find is this. Jesus Christ, whenever he came upon a natural disaster, if you will, he confronted a storm once in his life and he rebuked it as though it was of the devil. And whenever he came upon sickness and deformities and disease and all those things, he never once criminalized people for, for being afflicted, never once looking for a sin problem in their life or a moral dilemma in their life. He treated all these people like victims and the one he blamed was ultimately Satan and the demons that are afflicting this world and screwing everything up. And what his job was was to, amen, to bring the power of God Against that, here's what God is like. He hates this stuff. He's not secretly behind it making all these screwed up things. No, Jesus comes against it. He rebukes it. He uses the power of God and the love of God to confront every area of creation that's not in line with God's will. And so it is in, uh, in the kingdom. If we're living in the new mode, if, we're, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ, if our, if our heroes are Jesus and Mary instead of John the Baptist and Elizabeth, then, then the only thing we should be doing is this. Not wasting our time trying to speculate about who's to blame for this sort of thing. That's Old Testament thinking. Rather, the only thing we ask is, what can we do uh, in, in Jesus' name and with the love of God and with the power of God through prayer to minister to these people who are victims, who are, who are uh, oppressed in this creation that still groans? Completely should change the way we look at things. How can we replicate Calvary to this person and these people right here and right now? That's the only question that we need to be living in. So much of the theology today is, is, uh, is rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and we really got to get out of that. I, uh, one, one other example, and I'm not going to preach on this, so don't worry, but, but I, I, so much American Christianity is rooted in, in, in the nationalism of the Old Testament. And it has been, really, from the start. And so we see ourselves as the new Israel, and we're the righteous ones, and God's on our side, and God's fighting our battles. He did that sometimes, on occasion, wasn't his ordinary mode of operation, but he did in the Old Testament. But see... We're not in the Old Testament now. Jesus makes it perfectly clear that that nationalistic program, and it was one nation that God worked with, and it wasn't America. It was Israel. 
Uh, but that whole nationalistic program's done. And when Jesus comes, he says it very explicitly. People are always trying to pull him back into that old nationalistic program. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm about. My kingdom is not of this world. I got a different kind of kingdom going on here. Uh, you know, the, the, this New Testament revolution, this kingdom revolution, it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. It's not centered on a nation. It's not centered on an ethnicity. It's not centered on a particular culture because Jesus Christ transcends and embraces and critiques all nations, all ideologies, all political programs. And if we're thinking in New Testament terms, we shouldn't be looping in uh, this nationalistic talk and God's favored nation and things of that sort. Okay, I got to move on. Otherwise, <laughs> let go of the old and embrace the new. Center all your thinking about God, self, world events, nations, wars, all of it. Filter everything about your life and everything about God and everything that's going on in history through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's the first application. The second application that I got to rush to is, is, is it's a more general one. And that's this. Uh, let go of the old and embrace the new in your life. In your life at all times. Uh, you see, to, to embrace the new, you've got to be kind of courageous. You've got to be willing to let go of the old. Uh, this is why Elizabeth and Mary are heroes. They, they, even though it was odd, God's doing some weird things here. This isn't what they're used to. They're not, you know, Mary's like, angels don't show up to little peasant girls in Nazareth, all right? This is weird. And, and, and virgins don't usually get pregnant, and old ladies don't usually get pregnant, but there's a lot of weird stuff going on here, and they're not used to this, but they're saying, Lord, be it unto me according to your will. That's what, that's what Mary says. They went along with it. But see, there are some people who didn't in the, in, in the New Testament. Though, when, when you are, have your security in the old, when you benefit from the old, uh, when, when you're the top dog of the old, when the old has worked for you in the past, it's very hard to let go of it and embrace something new. That's why you can go to your class reunion, 25th class reunion, and you find some of these uh, cheerleaders still acting like 17-year-old cheerleaders. It's like, that, let go of the old and embrace the new. <laughs> that was really cute when you were 17. It's not that cute when you're 47. So come on, uh, let, let, let's upgrade, okay? Let, let it go. Um, well, it's the same thing in all of our lives. The Pharisees, the Pharisees, for example, really got into, the, they were really into the old. They were the guardians of the old. They benefited from the old. They liked the old. And for just that reason, they couldn't accept the new. And if you don't accept the new, you'll find yourself fighting the new. And so they were saying stuff like, oh, Jesus, he can't be the Messiah. He's got, okay, he's a descendant of David, legally speaking, but, but, but that's all. He, his mom's a nobody. His dad's a nobody. He's born in Nowhereville. He doesn't have any of the credentials that qualify him to be a Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. Look, at he breaks all of our religious rules. He heals people on the Sabbath. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. He breaks all of our Jim Crow laws, man. He's hanging out with the Samaritans. He's hanging out with these Gentiles. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. He's, he doesn't act socially respectable. He breaks our social taboos. He's touching lepers. We got laws about that kind of thing. He can't be the Messiah. He criticizes the religious establishment. Who does he think he is? He, he cleanses the temple of our unjust money changers. Who does he think he is? He embarrasses us. We got to crucify this guy. See, they really benefited from the old. They had their security and their religiosity and their rightness in the old. And if you're hanging on to the old, you can't embrace the new. The thing is this, you guys. God always wants to be doing new things in our life. And no book says it better than this, by the way. <laughs> I, I, it's, it, he just constantly, God is a living God, not a dead God. And life is always moving, always changing. It's a river that doesn't freeze over. It's never the same. Every morning, it's a new day. 
And God is ever-present. That's why he says to the Pharisees, uh, when they're criticizing him for healing on the Sabbath, he says, you know, my, hey, my father's always working. You think he takes a day off? My father's always working, and my job, and it's also your job if you'd be open to it, is to carry on that work, to do the father's work. Even if it's on the Sabbath, because Sabbath wasn't made for man, but man, or a man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man, or however you put it. Um, but he's saying that God's always working. He's an ever-present, always working God. And so the question we've got to live in is this. What new thing does God want to birth in your life? Because there is something, even right now, there's something God wants to grow in you, something God wants to change in you, something God wants to improve in you, something God wants to convict about you, some new, new area that you're supposed to go into. And, and the question is this. Are you willing to let go of the old to embrace the new? Or will you just keep on hanging on to the old? Usually what happens is you're going along and you're happy and, and you're just doing this thing, you've been doing this for all this time, and all of a sudden it starts to feel different. It starts to feel odd. It starts to feel empty. You, you, you develop an incongruity and, and you can't quite put your finger on it. There's something off here. Something's off here. Now, if you put your security above obeying God, you'll just suppress that and you'll keep on doing the old. Uh, and that will get more and more stagnant and you'll become sterile and, and, uh, and life starts to seep out of you. But if you'll obey God, he'll always lead you into a fuller, more passionate relationship with him and grow things in you that otherwise, otherwise wouldn't be grown and use you in ways he otherwise couldn't use you. What new thing is God trying to bring about in your life? Are you willing to let go of the old and embrace the new? Last year when I took the sabbatical, uh, I needed to take a sabbatical because I just had developed too much incongruity. It's like, okay, I, I, I got to step out of the stream to do an analysis here. And what I did, I found some very interesting things that God wanted to do in me. I can't, couldn't keep doing the old Greg Boyd. I, there's a new thing that God wanted to birth in me. One of them was this, and this will strike you, some of you as odd, but God told me that I, I was supposed to quit eating meat. I, I became a vegetarian. And, and now that I did that, I can think, okay, God was telling me that for quite a while, but I love meat. I've always eaten meat. I grew up on meat. I... Ask anybody who knows me, they'll say, whenever I went to a restaurant, I would say, I'll have a steak and bring it as rare as is legal for you to bring it. I, I like a red. I don't care if it's mooing. You know, sit on the table, I'll bite into it. I just love, you know, I used to eat rare, ham raw hamburger. I just loved it. It's like, I was a carnivore to the core. And all of a sudden, God says, stop that. Now, he doesn't tell everyone, stop that. This isn't, this isn't a, see, God will tell you stuff that he doesn't tell other people, and stuff that was okay up till today all of a sudden stops being okay. You, you, you got to move with God. Some people say, when they hear that, people get weird about that. It's like they, they, they feel like you're going to come up with a doctrine on it, or they think you're a liberal tree hugger or something. Oh, vegetarian, what are you, in the New Age movement or something? Uh, no, it's, it's not. God just did a thing in me where he, he, it was this. He, he, he said, here's the principle. Uh, I want you, don't kill anything unless you absolutely have to. And if there's another human, being, another human being involved, don't do it even if you have to. Uh, and and li live in congruity with that. And I just made that commitment. Now that I made it, there was, boom, something happened to me. I, I see the world a little different. I see a preciousness in life that I didn't see before. And that's not about you. It's just about me. There's no judgment on that. There's no rule on that. People say, well, where's the verse that tells you to do that? There's no verse that tells you to do that. But that's Old Testament thinking. Like the only reason I'm going to do anything is because there's a verse that forces me to do it. No, no, see, it's not, the Spirit leads us in ways that he wants to lead us. And often we don't know why he's leading us in that way. But if you'll obey, if you'll submit, you'll find out. Oh, there's something that, there's a change that happened there, you see? And uh, let God do the work in you. 
It's not about what others are doing. It's not about what you did in the past. It's about right here today, you and God, what does he want of you? That's why Paul says in Romans 14, don't go judging any other master's servant. Every servant answers to their own master. And what the the master requires of one, he doesn't require of another. Our job is to obey God. Let God deal with other people. You just obey God. You don't need to be sitting there saying, oh, you're superior, better because you don't do this or that or the other thing. Just, just listen to God. Follow God as he leads you along the way. And you'll find out the thing that God wants to do in you. What new thing does God want to birth in you? Are you willing to let go of the old in order to embrace the new? God's always working, always growing, always leading, always challenging. For example, some people here, perhaps, I don't know this, but maybe God's moving on you to worship in a different way. You've always worshipped the same way and it's worked for you in the past, but lately it seems kind of unfulfilling. I, have you ever thought about raising your hands uh, in worship? There's 18 verses that deal with, they tell us to do that, raise your hands. But you've never felt like doing that. You think it's kind of whatever, charismatic or whatever. Maybe it's time to get over that one and, and, and start worshipping God with your body. Some, some of us have never worshipped God extravagantly. We might get extravagant and use our bodies at football games and soccer games or at a dance place. But when it comes to church, we're just conditioned, socially conditioned to be boring. Maybe it's time to get over that. Maybe God's working in your life. That was fine two weeks ago. Now there's an unsettledness. Are you willing to move, ready to move into some extravagant worship where you lift up your hands? Maybe where you dance with your feet and, and you just worship God with your, with, with your body. Maybe you've never volunteered in children's ministry, but all of a sudden there's something stirring inside you. Listen to that voice. God's always, always working, always growing, always leading, always challenging. Maybe you've never taken a missions trip, but maybe now's the time to do it. Something's stirring in you. Maybe you've never been a missionary overseas, but God's stirring like he did with Kevin. Maybe there's something stirring in you about pay attention, listen to God. Maybe you've never actually stepped out and, and tried praying for somebody for healing. That just strikes you as kind of a different, weird sort of thing, even though it's biblical. Ah, listen to God. Listen, just, just follow. He's always growing. He's always leading. He's always challenging. Maybe the next person that tells you they're sick, you're, you're supposed to say, do you mind if I lay hands on you and pray for you? You know, just try it. Hey, you know, there, there might, maybe that's an area God wants to use you. And so it is for a number of things. I've never spoken in tongues, and I'm not even sure. I, I think it's kind of spooky. Maybe it's time to start. <laughs> Are you willing to be open to that? Is God working your life on that one? Maybe God wants to use you in a prophetic ministry. Have you ever, you know, paid attention to, have you ever, maybe there are people here who have never, like, really p- listened to God, paid attention to God. Listen to that, st- that still small voice. Start doing that, and he'll start stirring st- stuff up in you, uh, leading you, growing you, challenging you. Maybe you've never intentionally been a reconciler. You've never gone out of your way to, to befriend a person of a different ethnicity. Uh, listen to the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's stirring something in you. Maybe this is the time to start doing that. And he wants to use you as, as, a, as, a, as a kingdom bridge builder. Maybe in the past you've been fine never committing your finances to God, but now there's something, there's just something off. Something's missing. Consider that. Maybe God wants to say, okay, now, now you've grown to the point where I don't want your leftovers anymore. I want, I, I want your first fruits. Uh, you know, g- give me your best. Uh, maybe you've never gone on a fast before, but it's time to start. Maybe you've never had a committed prayer life before, but it's time to start. And sometimes God will just, stuff that you were never convicted of before, all of a sudden, he convicts you. And just because you did it in the past doesn't mean you should be doing it in the present. God's always moving, always challenging, always growing us. Times, life is always moving on. And it's supposed to be growing. A friend of mine the other day, or the other month now, just, uh, he doesn't have a drinking problem, but God just told him, okay, you know what? I want you to lay off alcohol for a while anyways, and maybe for life. I'll tell you when you can go back to it. He doesn't know why, but he feels good now that, he's, that, he, that he gave that up. Does that mean everyone's supposed to give it up? No. 
Is there a verse that tells him he has to give it up? No, but that's what God's telling him. God tells you to stop eating meat. God tells you to stop drinking alcohol. But God tells you to start raising your hands. All of us have to answer to God in terms of what he requires of us, not setting up little judgment mechanisms to look at everybody else. The thrust of this is this. Are you willing to let go of the old to embrace the new? Now, here's the thing. I close with this. Embracing the new and letting go of the old always is somewhat uncomfortable. Always is somewhat uncomfortable. We're, we tend to be addicted to the old. It's secure. We like it. We're used to it. It's predictable. Come on. I've always been this way. But see, if you have that mindset, if you stay addicted to the security and the rightness of your past and all those things, it will just keep you from, from growing. And when you hang on to the old, once it becomes old, it starts to rot. And the quality and the passion of your life and the zest of your life is going to start going downhill. Listen to God. Be willing, like Mary and Elizabeth, to let go of the old to embrace the new. What new thing is God wanting to do in your life? If, if embracing the new always makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, listen to this, my closing word. It means that we, kingdom people, should always be a little bit uncomfortable. Because there's always a new thing that God wants to do. I've never done that before. Well, you know what? That, that's, that should be kind of the, our marching orders. He's always doing new things. What new thing does God want to birth in you? I'm going to close in prayer. I want to leave you with this word. If you have any need that you want to have prayed for, uh, maybe it's about listening to God, listening to God, moment-by-moment moment basis. And you want to have prayed for that, I encourage you to come forward. We'll have prayer teams up here who would like to pray with you. If you're here this morning and you're not a kingdom person, which means you've never accepted Christ in your life, never surrendered your life to Christ, uh, never committed your life to following Christ, up here to my right, your left, uh, that lovely person under that sign will be glad to explain to you what that's about. I challenge you to, to investigate that. And so, Father, as we leave this place, I pray, God, you continue your ongoing work of building your kingdom in our life. Help us, Lord God, free us from our, the addiction to the old to embrace the new. Help us, Lord God, to uh, understand you and ourselves and the world in the light of Jesus Christ, nothing else. And help us to be conformed to that image moment by moment, ever increasingly as you continue your work in your life. We surrender our lives up to you moment by moment, starting now. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Go out and build the kingdom.